All right, guys, we want to consider Jude 4 through 16. I'm so thankful for Jim. Uh, like, like he said, we've been in New Orleans for been nine years uh, in June, and they've just been a faithful partner to us. And uh, actually, like, I think my first fall in 2015 or so living here came to this for the first time and uh, got to meet brothers like Kevin Celestine here and just, yeah, just thankful for this uh, conference. Um, so I have a, I have a 13-year-old now. It's my oldest uh, son, and I, I don't know how many of you in here have kids or, or kids at that age, but, you know, things start to get real at the age of 13. You start looking at this boy who's talking like a man now, and uh, you're, it's, really, it's really getting real that this, this kid's not going to be in my house anymore, and, uh, and, and I feel the pressure of just making sure that he is ready to go out and, and be a man. So a, a couple of things I've done uh, in relation to that is uh, I had him start lifting weights. Now, I, I don't think you have to lift weights to be a man, but I have a couple barbells in our garage, and uh, I just want him to do something hard, something that he has to push through where he wants to quit. And you're just like, no, you're going to do another rep. You're going to do another set. So that's been something for us to enjoy. He's probably very glad that I'm here uh, tonight because he usually has to do them in the afternoon. Um, but another thing uh, is, uh, and Jim even referenced this a while ago, uh, I, I got him to watch Band of Brothers with me. So I'd watch Band of Brothers, I don't know, like 10 or 15 years ago. And uh, I wanted him to watch uh, Band of Brothers with me uh, for multiple reasons. But I think some of it was just as he got older, I was like, I want you to see the cost and sacrifice as some men just... And I think even Phil shared with me, his father went at the age of 17. You know, just the cost and sacrifice that these, these men just with their own lives put forward. I, I want you to see that. And also just, I think Band of Brothers, with the interviews and the things you see, you see good examples of leadership. You see bad examples of leadership. Um, and and I, I need to give a little uh, preface for this, but uh, we've kind of come to the end uh, there's only one episode that has sexual content, so let me just put that out. It's the one I'm talking about, but the episode is what Jim referenced a while ago. It's called Why We Fight, and this is basically, you know, Easy Company. They're coming to the end of their time, and what you see uh, that's kind of built up in them is bitterness and frustration. I mean, you can imagine that. Being in World War II, see so many of your friends die, uh, just have trauma that you're going to carry with you for the rest of your life. And these men are frustrated. It even shows them uh, as they're in a park, uh, they have these prisoners of war uh, from Germany who are going past them. And one of them just starts yelling, why did you make us come here? Like, you're the reason that I had to leave my home and come here to fight you. And just, they're just furious. They, they've done all this fighting. They've seen dying. They've seen pain. They've, they, all these things. And they're frustrated and they're bitter. They're like, we have done this for nothing. And that episode really builds up to help them see that they haven't done this for nothing. Because as they're patrolling one day, they can smell smoke. They're coming up onto this place they don't know it, so they just start getting their weapons ready. And they walk up on a concentration camp full of Jewish men who are starved to death, and some who are lying there dead because uh, when the, the guards who were watching them left that morning, they emptied all the ammo they had to kill as many of them as they could. And you can see these scenes as they are seeing these people with their ribs showing, their bony legs, 
starving to death. What happens in that moment is that their imagination is flooded with this horror before them that they'll never forget why they had to fight. And I think Jude is doing a similar thing here. We're going to read Jude 4 through 16. And I think what Jude 4 through 16 is flooding your imagination with the way of the wicked and the end of the wicked. God is flooding our imagination here so that we don't forget the way of the wicked and the end of the wicked. Now, there's much confusion here. There's much clarity. Um, uh, my pastor back in Louisville, uh, Ron Fullerton, when he had us in a pastoral apprenticeship and would teach us how to preach, he says, when you got a really confusing passage, you, you know, you got to emphasize what's clear. <laughs> and so when you come upon a first reading in this passage in Jude, it can seem somewhat confusing. But here, here's the thing. Upon a second and third reading, it still can be confusing. <laughs> um, and, and then you even have questions like this. Man, does Jude believe First Enoch is sacred scripture? Um, much of this passage is informed by Jewish tradition. It's informed by uh, books like First Enoch. It's informed by books like the Assumption of Moses, um, along with other Jewish, tra- uh, Jewish traditions. So just from the outside, uh, outside, I think it's helpful to say that in our view of Holy Scripture, that authors inspired by the Holy Spirit like Jude are, Jude are free to do very human things in their writings, like being informed by other historical and theological writings that are not necessarily Holy Scripture. But though there are many confusion, confusing things here over references and why he's even structuring this way, why he's given all these examples, I think what is clear in Jude is that Jude wants to flood our minds with a host of imagery to remind us that the way and the end of the wicked has always been the same. This helps us in our contending because by seeing the way of the wicked, we know who we are contending with. Hear me. We see the way of the wicked. It hasn't changed. We know who we're contending with. But probably what is primary in this passage is not just the discernment of those who will creep in, but the assurance that even when they cause destruction in our midst, even when they harm the faith of people that we love, God will Judge them. God has shown himself over and over again that he is a God that will not be mocked. So let's read Jude 4 through 16. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, Serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. 
But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. So what I want to do for us this uh, evening as we consider this is I just want to go back through the flow of this passage. Just consider the flow of the passage just to gain some clarity, provide some commentary. And then I want to close by giving you five needs, five needs in order to discern, contend and rest assured. Five needs in order to discern, contend and rest assured. So see the flow of the passage this way. This is how I see the flow of this passage. We first have a, in verse 4, a description of people who have crept in unnoticed. That's what we're seeing first, a description of these people who have crept in unnoticed. And if you read through this passage, it almost seems intentional that um, Jude is kind of using sets of threes as he uh, puts this before us. And then in verses 5 through 7, we see God's judgment in three Old Testament examples. So God's judgment in three Old Testament examples. And then we... Also see another three, but it's tied to the foundation of their authority in verse eight. So we're seeing what is their basis of authority? What's their foundation of authority? Where is this teaching or or this uh, example coming from? And you get that in verse eight and we'll see that as their dreamers. And then we uh, see this dispute between uh, Michael, the archangel and the devil brought up in verses nine through ten. And then we have the woe oracle in verses 11 through 13. And then we have Enoch's prophecy, closing it out, verses 14 through 16. So let's start back at the top. Who are these people who have crept in unnoticed? First, we see that they're described as ungodly. Then he says that they pervert the grace of God into sensuality. In relation to this perversion of the grace of God, many commentators believe that this refers to a licentious living. And probably given the examples that we have that Jude provides to us, probably more directly related to sexual immorality. This seems likely. But isn't it amazing as we look at this, we we think about the perverting of the grace of God, that perverting the grace of God can either happen with licentiousness or with asceticism. Our pastors, while I was on sabbatical, they were preaching to Colossians, and what just kept coming up over and over again was this asceticism, do not touch the good gifts of God. Do not eat the good gifts of God. And then we, over here, 
what we're seeing from Jude is the very opposite. A perverting of the grace of God is like, oh, just go. Go and sin away. He describes a third way here of those who have crept in that they deny Jesus' lordship. Now, this isn't specifically described to us how they deny it. But here in a moment, Jude's going to tell us that they base a lot of what they do on their dreams. So one can imagine these dreamers probably reimagine what Jesus has taught by their subjective experiences. Next, we see the judgment illustrated in three Old Testament examples. So we see this in verses 5 through 7. Now, before we consider these examples, why are these particular examples being presented before us? I mean, there could be many other examples, but why these examples? Well, you got to see these are episodes that are remembered all throughout the Bible. These, These are great examples of sin and the certainty of God's judgment. And not just all throughout the Bible, but if you go look through Jewish tradition, you can see... This was well ingrained into the imagination of Israel of great sin and God's judgment. So first we see here what? The punishment of Israel. Uh, Jude here has in mind the events of Numbers 13 and 14 where the spies have been sent out to spy out the land and to bring back a report. And their report is this. The Canaanites are giants and they don't want to take the land. They show their unbelief in the promises of God that he has given them this land, and they should take it. So God judges them, right? He judges this generation, and they are forever known to Israel and even to us today. This is what? The wandering generation. They're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. This is God's judgment to them because of their unbelief. And then, this is where the passage gets real interesting, right? We have these angels. These angels that have left their proper dwelling. Now, what in the world is he talking about? Well, I want to present an interpretation to you. You can feel free to disagree with me later. You can contend earnestly with me, even if you want to. (laughs) But I think the answer here is that Jude is referring to the angels in Genesis 6, who are referred to to there in that context as the sons of God. I think this uh, this story is speaking of them being attracted to the daughters of man, that they left their place of authority and had sexual relations to, with these women. Now, I know this passage seems wild, and I know uh, that there's various interpretations on Genesis 6. But let me just give you a quick argument on why I think this is what it's referring to. First, Jude is full, full of references from Jewish tradition, and much of that Jewish tradition interprets Genesis 6 in that way. Um, second, I, I think, uh, and because one of the arguments that can come up here is like, well, can angels really in, engage with humans in that way? And I think sexual relations between human beings and angels would be possible because the Bible shows that uh, angels, can present them, or angels can present themselves as human beings. Now, you could say, well, is that kind of like in a hologram way? I don't think that's the case because even the example he gives here of Sodom and Gomorrah, if you remember in Genesis 19, the, the angels who come as human beings to Lot, they do very physical things in Lot's house. If you don't remember, I can uh, remind you here, uh, they wash their feet. They physically eat food that uh, Lot prepares for them. And then when the men of Sodom come to take them to have sex with them, Lot stands in the, way, uh, in the doorway, and what did they do? They pull him back. They physically engage with him. So I think this shows that it could be a possibility that angels can leave their place of authority, take on a physical 
uh, being and, and, and engaged sexually. Now, the other problem with this passage is like, okay, did that result in offspring? And uh, I'll just reference someone who's much smarter than me. If you want to go look this up, Peter Gentry, uh, language scholar, Hebrew scholar at Southern Seminary. He's done a good video on this, uh, on whether the Nephilim are actually like these mixed beings that came about. Um, I think he presents actually a good argument that they're not. And that uh, when you read Genesis 6, that what you're seeing more there is a parenthetical statement that, yes, these uh, angels engage in this way, and it was a great sin. They, they left their authority. But it's almost like a parenthetical statement that you see there. And the Nephilim were there. And so he's, what he's trying to say is when you read that passage, yes, the Nephilim were there, but it's not because they're a result of that. I'll let you go look that video up, and if you're convinced by it, great. Third, I think this great sin of the angels is also referred to not only in Jewish tradition, but also in other parts of the Scripture. So, one, I believe it's being referred to here. But also, I preached through 1 Peter uh, recently, and I think 1 Peter 3, the spirits in prison that Jesus preaches to, I think he's referring to these same angels. And lastly, I would say 2 Peter 2, I think the, the angels referred there as being cast into hell, committed to chains of gloomy darkness, waiting to be judged. I think these are the angels that he's referring to. And like 1 Peter 1, these angels are mentioned right with Noah's generation. So I think Genesis 6 is very well in mind. And fourth, whether you agree with me or not, can I give you just an exhortation to let the Bible be wild at times? Okay. <laughs> We don't need to tame the Bible. The reality is, if you don't agree with me, you still need to agree with me on this, that there is a world that we don't see, that there is an angelic, demonic world. And, and here's the thing. Nature teaches you that the world is wild. So the other day, my kids showed me this video of this octopus that can <laughs> lay itself on a rock and look just like the rock. Now, walk that back some steps. Imagine the first person who saw an octopus came out the water and is trying to describe to others what he just saw. I saw this head, kind of jello-like, with eight legs coming from it and tentacles. And if he saw this same octopus and he laid on a rock and he looked just like a rock. I mean, people would think, you're crazy. But you don't think it's crazy because you've seen an octopus. Friends, the world is wild, and I think nature teaches us that creation is amazing, and there's a world that we don't see. So if you don't, if you, if you don't agree with me, we can at least agree. Angels exist, and angels did something so rebellious and so horrible that God judged them. And then lastly, we have Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, we all know of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's known for its sin and its judgment. It was a place of great sexual sin and a place that disregarded the most vulnerable people around them. And listen to me. God rained down fire and sulfur on these people. Jim even referenced it a while ago. We even see God's patience. Yes, even if there's ten, I'll spare the city. But God rained down judgment. These are examples of wickedness and judgment. Now, Verse 8, we see the base of their authority. Of those who, who creep in, Jude says they defile the flesh, they reject authority, they blaspheme the glorious ones, but by what means? By what basis? The dreamers. Now, now surely the Lord has used dreams in the most godly of people 
But dreams also come with a warning because of their what? Their subjectivity. I mean, hear how the Lord instructs Israel on dreamers in Deuteronomy 13. What does he say there? If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder tells you, tell, uh, or, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. And you shall serve him and hold fast to him. So the basic principle is laid out here. If one is to come to you with dreams and they contradict the, the word of God, you, you, you don't follow the dreamer. It says here as well that they, on the basis of their dreams, they defile the flesh. To defile is to stain. It is to violate the purity of something. Now, defilement here could maybe be general, but according to Matthew Harmon, who uh, comments on this, he says, since Jude has first Enoch in mind, defilement there is most certainly related to sexual immorality. It says here as well that they reject authority when it, says they reject authority. This is more likely referring to the authority of Christ as verse 4 has already said that they reject our Jesus, our Master and Lord. Then it comes to another spicy part here. What's it saying? They blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, once again, to be honest, interpretation of this is difficult because what seems clear is that glorious ones is referring to angels. But here's the hard question. Which angels? I think initially the reference to glorious ones naturally causes one to think of the heavenly hosts and not the fallen ones. So one could reason this is probably a licentious group of false teachers who blasphemed the glorious ones because God, through his angels, revealed what? His law to the people of Israel, and they disregard God's righteous ways. But the problem is the story that falls right after it. And I think this story is to bring clarity. The only problem is the next story, which I think brings clarity in, in this story accounts of Michael, the archangel, disputing with the devil, which I think informs who these glorious ones are. And I think these glorious ones that he is referring to are actually fallen angels, demonic. Think about the dispute between Michael, the archangel, archangel and the devil. See this in verses 9 through 10. Now, as you read this and think about it, you're probably thinking, what in the world is he talking about here? Well, this is Jude once more alluding to Jewish tradition. So in Deuteronomy 34, the death of Moses is recorded. However, the exchange between Michael and the devil is not. So this is probably a reference to the work of the assumption of Moses, where the exchange between Moses' body had to do with the devil's accusation that Moses was a murderer, that Moses murdered the Egyptian. Give me his body. You cannot have it. And Michael doesn't respond to pronounce judgment on Satan. But what does he do? It says here that he says, the Lord rebuke you. Now, even as you hear those words, if you know the rest of the Bible, that should really take your mind, I think, to what? Zechariah. Zechariah 3, where Satan is once again showing himself accusing Joshua the high priest because his garments are filthy. And the Lord rebukes Satan and takes 
Joshua's filthy garments away, saying that he has taken his iniquity away and puts pure vestments on him. So what is the contrast here? What is the contrast between Michael and these false teachers who blaspheme the glorious ones? Well, Michael, though knowing the devil to be wicked, and Michael, though being powerful and glorious, did not pronounce judgment on the devil, contrast it with these false teachers who pronounce judgment on what they do not understand. Tom Schreiner writes, The verse then has a simple contrast. Michael did not dare to pronounce a contemning judgment upon the devil. He left the judgment of Satan in God's hands, asking God to judge him finally. And so what we see here is not some lofty prophets who can contend with the demonic, but we have people who are spouting off things that they don't even understand. Blasphemous things coming out of their mind. He says they're like instinctive, unreasoning animals. They think there's something, but they don't even understand what they're saying. Provides for us more examples of who these people are like with this woe oracle in verses 11 through 13. And here we see some more uh, threes, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Now, Cain is not brought forward in this woe oracle because the false teachers are murderous. I don't think that's what he's saying, that they're going around killing people. Rather, probably what is going on here is they're saying, he's saying they had the same spirit as Cain, a spirit of selfishness, of envy. Instead of repenting when the Lord said Abel's gift was more acceptable than his, Cain goes to kill Abel. Listen, selfish people will do anything to get what they want, whether it's killing a brother out of envy or leading others astray just for the sake of influence and status. Remember this. This is a common marker of false teachers in the, in the New Testament. They're what? They're for shameful gain. They're conceited. They will do anything to get what they want for status and influence. And then he brings up Balaam. Now, Balaam is best known probably for, if you grew up reading the Bible for being rebuked by a donkey. But the mention of him here is, probably has more of the memory of how Balaam was killed And in Numbers 31. So in Numbers 31, he's killed. And Moses says that the reason that he was killed was because he led the sons of Israel into sexual sin, which would have happened at um, Baal Peor in Numbers 25. So once again, sexual sin is being brought up here. And those who would lead others into sexual sin, into licentiousness. But what is also being reminded to us, God judged. God judged his sin. And then we have Korah. Now, this, 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 is a, this is a great example here because you have Korah who has this priestly position, but he resents the authority and leadership of Moses and Aaron. And God judged Korah and his followers in their rebellion, as Jim, I think, even referenced a while ago, by having the earth swallow them up. So Jude's use of Korah typifies the severe judgment that will come to those who sneak into the churches of Christ to deny Christ's authority and to undermine the derived authority that has been given to their shepherds. What a great example that serves for us. Jude then continues to flood the imagination. Flood the imagination, just like these soldiers would have seen these starving Jewish people, and they would never forget why they fight. He continues to flood our imagination on who these people are. And so he gives us six vivid images. 
six vivid images, four which are in relation to creation. First, he says that there are hidden reefs at your love feast. Now, what does this mean? Hidden reefs, as you can think, a ship coming in to the dock. Everything looks safe. We can dock the boat here. But there's a reef under the water that's going to destroy the ship. This, this is who they are. They come in places where everything seems cool and safe, but they will destroy. And he mentions love feasts here. You know, love feasts here is probably referencing where Christians would gather together to eat together, and that time maybe even culminating with the, the Lord's Supper. And this is where they will insert themselves. It says this, they're shepherds feeding themselves. And we know from the book of Ezekiel how the Lord feels of shepherds who would feed themselves. He says that they're waterless clouds. They give the appearance of nourishment while providing no nourishment. Many of you probably know that feeling, right? Uh, we, uh, this past summer, we, we had in New Orleans, which I say this past summer, really this past fall, and many of you experienced this great drought that we uh, uh, had. But one thing I thought I never would hear is marsh fire. That, that just sounds like, you know, an oxymoron to me. Like, it's, <laughs> what's, what's drier than marsh? Like it's, but there, there was so much fire uh, that, there were, that many of you know this. There's smoke that mixed with fog, and there was like this huge wreck that killed people on the interstate. And, and I remember, like, every day we would look up and we'd see clouds, and we'd be like, please rain. <laughs> please rain. Can you imagine people who are thirsty and hungry for someone to speak truth to them, and the cloud rolls in, but it doesn't provide any life, doesn't provide any nourishment. This is who they are. Fruitless trees in late autumn. He even says they're dead twice. He's just, I mean, you're like, what does that mean? They're dead, and they're dead. They're dead, dead. <laughs> they have no fruit and need only to be dug up. They are wild waves, so no, no control, casting up their own foam. And it's, the way it speaks is foam, like sh- the foam that comes in, it reveals their shame. The foam is revealing who they are. They're wild waves. They're wandering stars. They are doomed for darkness. These are their ways. They don't change. But what also doesn't change is that God is going to judge them. And then that leads us into Enoch's prophecy in verses 14 through 16, Jude once again keeps things interesting by referencing Enoch. And Enoch is best known for not dying. I mean, that's pretty crazy, right? But he is also known here for prophesying of the final judgment to come on these false teachers. Now, the words and ideas Jude quotes here coming from Enoch are really not just words that would, and ideas that would come from Enoch. We, we also see from Deut- Deuteronomy 33, there's such a scene provided of God and His holy host, and Daniel 7, and these thousands of holy ones whom God will bring as He judges. But what is clear in using Enoch's prophecy is once again providing us assurance that God will judge. And then this passage, to help us all the more, to flood our imagination, brings more imagery more descriptions of who these people are like. We're not left in the dark. If you've read this, consider this. You are not left in the dark on what these people are like. They're grumblers, malcontents. And I had to research it a little bit. Um, Think of fault finders, always looking for fault. They follow their desires. 
They're loudmouth boasters. They show favoritism to gain advantage. These last descriptions show much of what their speech is like. Like Israel of old, they grumble and they gripe. They are loudmouths using their tongues to boast about themselves. And they're either quick to find fault in others or deceptively they flatter others that they may gain status, power, and wealth. This is who they are. Now before I go to the needs, the needs to discern, content, and rest assured, I think one thing that we need to consider about our day, the challenge of our day, is that ungodly people can creep in and have influence on your people without walking through the doors of your church. And you know what I'm referring to. I'm referring to the Internet. And I want you to hear me. I'm not against leveraging online ministry. I don't think the medium of podcasts, YouTube, and Instagram are evils in themselves. I imagine many people, even in this room, uh, have maybe come to faith or been strengthened in their faith through mediums like radio, television, or digital media. I mean, I listen to podcasts on a daily basis, and, and I'm regularly helped by it. But I think, brothers, we are a bit delusional if we think we can combat all the misinformation out there by simply creating more digital content. I think it's helpful to dispense it, but I think we should lean more into only what the church can offer and a culture that only the church can offer to an age that is so anxious and lonely because of digital media. We need to lean into what the church does best, a real physical community surrounded around the Word of God, seeking to proclaim Christ, loving one another, welcoming the stranger, and praying for God's help. So let me give you five needs to discern, contend, and rest assured. This will be no surprise. I think it's showed up in every sermon so far. We need, first need, we need to faithfully preach the Word of God. Faithful preaching and teaching of God's word equips our people in sound doctrine and sound living. Faithful teaching and preaching of God's word helps us and our people to discern good and bad fruit. Now, I know like it's often a goal of ours. We want to preach in such a way and teach in such a way that our people are equipped in sound doctrine. But what we can't miss here is our people need to know what righteousness looks like as well in the lives of others. Um, I, I think this is so important because if you often read the New Testament, I was even reading 1 Timothy 6 with my kids last night at dinner. What I'm amazed about is how often the fruit of false teachers is mentioned. So, so think about this. I feel like if you read the New Testament, you hear false teachers, but rarely is there a deep dive into what is actually being taught. Um, that's why almost there's always speculation on what is actually being taught here. Rather, what is the New Testament Writers hammer away at. They hammer away at, this is the fruit that they will manifest. Uh, secondly, friends, sometimes character is more clear than the deceptive teaching. Now, that, that's not to say that people can't present themselves as humble and then, you know, they are reefs that look like they're in safe harbors, right? But I remember experiencing this with my grandma. She had an insurance guy who was also some type of Bible teacher who was coming to her house. And he happened to be there one time. And as I engaged with this guy, I was like a Bible college student at the time. 
as I engaged with this guy, I was like, hmm, something's off here. <laughs> Things he was saying, I was just like, oh, I, 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 I think, and I literally, when he left, I, I looked at my grandma and I said, Momo, I think, I think this guy's a wolf. And she said, what? Um, why do you think that? And then this is one thing she said to me, and this is where I say, like, I think fruit sometimes can be more easily seen than sometimes doctrine. Because she said, Matthew, everything he talks about, he says from the Bible. He connects to the Bible. And I was like, okay. I was like, but Mama, what do you think about him as a person? Like, what do you think about his character? And then this is what she said. He's kind of full of himself. And I was like, well, we want to be really slow to listen to people who teach the Bible who are really full of themselves. Because the Bible is very clear that false teachers are conceited. They are self-serving. Here's, here's another reason. Many false teachers know how to dog whistle. And what I mean by that, they know how to throw out concepts that they may not value, but they know that you value. They can even divert your eyes away from them by what? Things that we've even heard mentioned here, by praising you. Pastor, what would this church do without you? I've never heard an expositor of the Bible like you. So through our preaching, we need to equip our people not only to know what sound doctrine is, but we also we need to show them what that doctrine produces, good fruit. And this is the last thing I want to say about preaching. Uh, me and a friend were talking about this uh, the other day. But we need to remember that when we preach, that we are believing something supernatural is happening. Right? I'm not a mere educator. I, I hope to teach. I hope to instruct. But that at the end of the day, and this is what I pray before every sermon. I've been doing this probably, I think, for the past year. I just pray this simple prayer. Father, as we read and consider your word today, would you show us the glory of God in the face of Jesus? And in seeing that glory, would you make us like him? Brothers, like this should give you hope in a day where there are those creeping in that when you preach, that you're not just simply informing minds. You're showing people the glory of Jesus and he is transforming them into his image. That is, it should be our hope in preaching. The sec, second need, second need, we need to give our people, one, an example in ourselves. But if you have other pastors and deacons, give them exemplary leaders. And here, here are some ways in which we can be exemplary. Brothers, exemplify, exemplify with your words. Don't flatter or dominate, but love your people through encouragement and correction. Exemplify with generosity. If the way of wolves is shameful gain, then the way of shepherds is one that welcomes and gives. The way of a good shepherd is not compulsive service, but it is willing service. Exemplify with humility. It's clear from the Bible that false teachers are conceited. They live for themselves. Exemplify humility by serving the interests of your people over your own interests. Also, exemplify humility by confessing your sin. Make it clear that your people know that you need the gospel. Um, I, I think more people have come to me, like I've heard various reasons 
on why people have joined our church. Various reasons, all good, you know, like that, that, that you want to hear as a pastor. But I think I've heard more people say in relation to my preaching that they have come to our church because I, in some part of the service, may have confessed some weakness or confessed some sin, rather than saying, man, your preaching is awesome. What comforted them is that they knew that I believed that I needed the gospel. And, and that should not be confusing to your people. They should know, my pastor knows that he needs the gospel. Brothers, exemplify charity. If those who sneak in are fault finders, then be someone who exercises Christian charity as you speak of others. So even as we talk about contending earnestly, we want to contend earnestly while also being charitable, right? We want to be courageous and ready to speak up, but we also want to be charitable. Exemplify praise and gratitude. The ungodly know how to complain. And brothers, it's too much a temptation in our own ministries to gripe and complain. Listen, let me encourage you with something. This may not sound encouraging at first, but I'll... It needs to be encouraging. We will not see most of the fruit that we labor for. A lot of that's going to be reserved for the last day. And when you don't see that fruit, you know what's easy to do? Complain. Get with some other pastors, gripe, and complain. But brothers, do you not have something to praise God for today? Would it help you to know that your gratitude may very well protect your people from wolves, that they would hear the griping and complaining of others and think, my pastor doesn't talk like that. My pastor is full of gratitude. Exemplify and being quick to listen. Those who creep in, Scripture saying, they're a bunch of loudmouths, ready to boast, ready to beat their chests and suck up all the air in the room. Brothers, don't be quiet. When it's time to lead, don't be quiet when it's time to charge. Don't be quiet when it's time to rebuke. Don't be quiet when it's time to encourage. But in all other things, model someone who is ready to listen. Third need, we need to show hospitality. Now, there are many reasons to practice hospitality, but related to our passage today, hospitality allows us to know our people and for our people to know us. We need to build a culture at our churches where the expectation is that everyone is welcome and everyone is known. Now, the ultimate aim of this is not suspicion, rather joyful fellowship and ministry of the saints. However, hospitality can become a safeguard against those who creep in. That nobody is just going to hang around the peripheries looking for weak sheep to influence. Rather, everyone's going to be known. Fourth need, we need to pray. We need to pray. We need to pray for discernment. We need to pray that the Lord would deliver us from evil. And listen to me. We need to pray for the Lord to come and to judge. At the end of the day, this is our only sure hope, which leads me into the last need. We need, and this may sound strange, we need to comfort our people with God's judgment. Like I said, this may sound strange, but I feel like this is in one sense the whole thrust of the passage that we need to know that God's judgment is sure for those who rebel against Him. One, that should sober us. Why should that sober us? As Christians and pastors, we should be sobered that there are Israelites mentioned in this passage who would have put blood on their doorposts, who would have walked through the Red Sea to be delivered from the Egyptians, and then they would come up to the land and say, we can't take it. 
and God judged them. We need to be sobered by that. But if we are walking faithfully, we should long for the day when Jesus will judge the living and the dead. We should long for the day when all will be made right. Why? Because no matter how great our discernment, people will creep in unnoticed. They will hurt and they will even destroy the faith of some. And they very well may be on their way out before you can even bring church discipline their way. So what is your hope when false teachers have done damage? What is your hope when people in your church have been sinned against in a grave manner and justice in this life seems unlikely? Your hope is that the theme of the Bible from angels to Sodom, from the wandering generation to the wolves of Jude's day, is that God will judge sin. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this good, clarifying and sobering word from Jude. Lord, we pray, Lord, even as we uh, go from here, Lord, that you would continue just to equip us by your spirit to love our people, to shepherd them. Um, Lord, we pray, uh, Lord, even for the exposure of those who would maybe bring harm to any of the churches represented in this room. And Father, Lord, I do pray Lord, for my brothers in this room, help them to be examples uh, to their congregations as they uh, faithfully proclaim the gospel. Lord, I pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.